Welcome to another episode of Axel Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well because we have a special guest. Joining me is our staff writer, Hiran Cryer. Hello. Yeah, I'm now staff writer. Yes, and I have Hiran here because we got, wow, a lot happened in the RPG space this past week. The Fire Emblem Three Houses DLC was released. Pokemon Home was released. Uh, Hiran got to go see Persona 5 Royal, which was like actually, uh, well, I'm sure we're going to hear his thoughts in a little bit. And then a little later on the podcast, we're going to have special guest Shane Bettenhausen, formerly of 1UP and EGM, who is going to tell us all about the Dreamcast for the console RPG quest but before we get to that point exoblogod is a u.s gamer podcast you can find us on itunes stitcher or wherever podcasts are sold if you enjoy the podcast do me a favor leave us a review we always enjoy hearing from you unless you don't like us in which case go away we don't like you (laughs) (laughs) go under the couch in shame uh i'm on twitter at the underscore cap on nadia's at nadia oxford and here and you are at here and crier Yep, H-I-R-U-N-C-R-Y-E-R. Yes, and you can get wonderful uh, images of Hiran playing Nintendo Switch and people trying to guess what he's playing. <laughs> what were you playing? <laughs> yeah, I was playing the Fire Emblem DLC. Ah, yeah. so aha. Makes sense. I was like, what, c- what, could I, what could he possibly be playing? That's yeah, not dreams, it's, it's or not is dreams. it dreams? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's what I was doing all of last night. We also have a newsletter which comes out every single Wednesday, which Nadia puts out. Nadia, what is the newsletter about this week? Well, um, if you weren't aware, yesterday, well, yesterday at the time of this recording, was the anniversary, 30th anniversary of Super Mario Bros. 3. This is the 30th North American anniversary. And kind of segueing off that, I wrote about how Super Mario RPG owes a, a very, or sorry, rather, RPGs owe a very big debt to Super Mario RPG because um, I, I kind of go over how the, the timed hits battle system really revolutionized how battle systems are used even today. And I also talked about how the accessibility and familiarity of the franchise, the Mario franchise, made the uh, prospect of playing RPG starring Mario very appealing. So I, in my experience... A lot of people who love RPGs now started with with Super Mario RPG. Yeah, and it was one of Square and Nintendo's many, many attempts to get reticent North Americans to play RPGs for the first time. Yeah, and uh, they succeeded to some degree, I think. Um, Not quite as much as, say, Final Fantasy VII, but uh, my husband, for example, he wasn't an RPG fan at all, and, you know, he's not a huge fan now, but... uh, he did absolutely love Mario RPG and found it like a very easy RPG to play. Uh, again, because of the battle system, again, because of the familiarity. And also, it's a very speedy RPG. It doesn't really waste your time. Uh, there's not like loads and loads of character dialogue. It's all very, it's all written very snappily and has like a very funny script. It was also funnier than almost any game that came out at that time. It really was, yeah. To this day, I find that the Super Mario RPGs not just the first one, but all of the games in the line are some of the best written, not just the best written RPGs, but the best written games out there. They're always just hilariously funny. Hiran, did you ever play Super Mario RPG? Nope. I've literally, the only Mario game I've ever played in my entire life is Super Mario Odyssey. Um, Good one to start with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I don't know. Do you count um, the Rayman crossover that was all like tactical? 
I don't think so. No, probably not. Okay, so I've only played one Mario game ever. (laughs) Not surprising, since you are British. Yeah, yeah, true. I think, Nadia, if you were to play one Mario game now that he's played Mario Odyssey, so he's experienced a 3D Mario, what 2D Mario would you recommend, Nadia? I would still say go back to Mario 3 and give that a try, because it's, uh, gosh, it's a classic, and it's... I think it's aged very well. Um, either that or Super Mario World. You can't go wrong with either one. Yeah, I think getting on a SNES Classic and playing Mario World might actually be the best call because those graphics are still really nice. And though it is a little more advanced in Mario 3 in some ways, isn't it? It is. It's definitely a little bit more advanced. There's um, a bit more in the way of uh, game mechanics. Uh, I remember when I first played Mario World, I was a little bit confused by the idea of having two kinds of jumps because, of course, you have your regular B jump and you have your spinning A jump. And I'm like, why can't Mario have just one jump? This is crap. I don't get this. <laughs> all right. There you have it uh, here in your homework is to start with the original Super Mario Brothers and play through it all. And then you have to play Mario 2 and Mario 3. And then... Uh, you can't stop until you've caught up. <laughs> I think I can fit that in before the Final Fantasy VII Remaster. <laughs> I mean, you might be able to. Those games are quite short. I used to be able to beat Mario like three or four times in a single sitting. Yeah, games were were a little bit different back then. Okay, Hiran, the reason I have you here, you were alluding to earlier that you were playing Fire Emblem Three Houses DLC on your Nintendo Switch. I was going to be... A, that That would have been a perfect time for a segue but I need to finish the spiel and also lecturing you about Mario Brothers. But let's, uh, I, I would be curious, how is the Ash and Wolves DLC? Um, I've played about three hours so far. It should take you about eight to ten hours to complete. Um, it's really enjoyable. Um, as I've kind of written about in a news story earlier today about like the new gatekeeper, um, they're very much like the kids that are really cool at like, your, like high school or whatever that like you could never hang with that would always hang out in the um <laughs> hang out behind <laughs> like the school in the, the smoke hole smoking. yeah exactly exactly um so yeah they're basically like the anime version of them um they're really fun but like i think there's a whole lot more to this dlc there's like an entire town basically underneath the garag mac monastery um for some goddamn reason uh the church has been hiding that for a long time (laughs) Um, (laughs) like you do like you know gameplay wise it's like it's still same fire emblem three houses but like story wise it shines like a light on which i won't spoil here um it shines a light on some of like the kind of goings on behind the scenes to do with all the church and that it's like it's really enjoyable okay so i'm confused so i finished a black eagle run if I were to go back into that save, would I be able to instantly access the DLC? So it has nothing to do with your current saves. Um, mm. If you were booting up Fire Emblem for the very first time, you'd still be able to play it because it's accessed in its own slot from the main menu and all its saves are separate from the main game. Oh, that's really interesting. So in effect, it's a whole new playthrough. You can put, You can pick it up like no matter where you're at. Because um, I was worried it was kind of going to be like one of those, um, like, like kind of a Bloodborne DLC kind of thing, where you have to reach a certain stage in the game in order to access it. Um, but it's not like that at all. You can do it entirely independently from the main game. Um, thank God. That is a little bit of a relief. Um, I'm curious, who is your favorite character so far? Um, well, I think it was highly publicized that I was crushing on Yuri before. Um, 
highly uh, publicized. Kind of, yeah, I mean, I've written about it before on usgamer.net. He has. Um, oh. I agree. You should go check it yeah. out. Yeah, I believe the word twink was cut from that subhead. Um, <laughs> it, was. <laughs> it was. I had to edit it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's out there in the public domain. Um, Yuri is kind of like, actually, I said this to someone earlier, Yuri's like the Claude of the group. Like, you f- you'll find parallels in them between, like, the four characters that are new and, the four- and like, existing characters. But Yuri's very much like the sassy kind of tactical scheming Claude of the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've so, got like so the best the, character. Yeah. The best character by far. Um, and then you've got like the tall super hench Raphael type uh, called uh, Balthus. Um, he kind of reminds me of like final fantasy sevens Barrett a little bit. Mm. Um, and then you've got Constance, uh, the blonde haired um, woman. And she's like really like prim and proper. Um, which is a nice kind of contrast to the rest of them. And then there's Happy, which is kind of like, I don't know how to describe her. She's kind of like the odd one out, the weird one that's just like Happy doing nothing all day. I can relate. And I heard that you could have all three house leaders uh, kind of contributing as well, right? Yeah. So like this, I won't, this isn't spoiling anything, but the setup for the entire thing is that basically um, Byleth has got together with Edelgard, Claude and Dimitri, and they've seen someone mysterious running into the basement of um, the monastery. And they're like, oh, we should totally investigate that. So they all go down there together as a group. And that's where they discover um, all the new students in a new house. Um, so basically, like, it can, it can like, play out, basically, as a side mission um, from the main game where they've all just decided to group up for a little bit and go on, like, a small adventure to find some new people. And nobody checked the basement until now? Yeah, like, it's really weird. It's kind of, they, they kind of, like, because, like, that's the elephant in the room, right? It's like, how do you leave these students alone in the sewers for so long? Um, and they're kind of like, yeah, we like it that way. We kind of want it to be shut off from the world. Um, but it's still like a very, like, how have you been surviving down here all these years? I really liked your starting screen uh, column, by the way, Hiran, where you're talking about the deep anxiety that you were feeling going into Fire Emblem Three Houses and how you yeah. discovered that, in fact, you loved that game and your love blossomed for it. And it was great. <laughs> I um, I think one of the main reasons that happens, it, I kind of alluded to it in the article, but... I was given, like, basically three weeks lead time with that game. Like, code came in super early for it. Um, And there wasn't really much else out at the time. I think it was just after E3 that year, so nothing was going on. Um, And I just, like, totally switched off from all the conversations around it. Um, And I really got to, like, got to grips with it, whereas, like, I wouldn't be able to do that with another game, like Mass Effect or something, like I say in starting screen, right? Because there are already these existing opinions about every game you can play, and like you know, people are going to war over that franchise. Um, mm-hmm. when I like, I just tuned out Fire Movement, and it was like, it was nice. I also liked your uh, your bit about the just. We were talking about this last week, actually, or the week before, where the Fire Emblem shitposting community is very active and very healthy, even oh. after all this time. One thing I was referencing last week is a comic I hadn't stopped thinking of since I saw it where uh, the whole reason the sewer kids are in the sewer is because they wanted to start an anime club, and Lady Rhea told them that <laughs> anime is a sin and banned from the monastery, so they uh, went underground to start this anime club. <laughs> Honestly, like, they're the kind of kids that would do that at your school. Exactly. Like, I, like, screw it, we can't get the teachers on our side, we're out, we're just walking, and we're done. 
<laughs> they, they, they can't get the teachers on their side, but they're still pro-education, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they still need one teacher to come down there with them and do shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, Heron, you also checked out Persona 5 Royal, and you played through all of Persona 5, and Nadia also played through all of Persona 5, and yes. somebody here didn't play through all of Persona 5, despite the fact that it was one of her most anticipated games ever. Oh, I and who that was. And should probably feel deep, deep shame in her heart and should go stand in the corner. Having finished Persona 5, uh, what did you think of Persona 5 Royal? So I was like a little bit hesitant going into this because like obviously Persona 5 is like infamously long, like 100 hours long. And I was like, if there's just like one character that's new and they've just tacked on like a third term to the end of the game, am I really going to want to play it? Um but playing this, like, one of the things I was struck by is how, like, they've overhauled the dungeons completely. Mm. Um, so before you just, like, you'd run along the ground, you'd run from enemy to enemy, just, like, kind of bashing your head against them until you got to another safe room. Whereas mm-hmm. now you've got, like, a grappling hook. I believe it's on Joker's, like, right arm. And it'll make, a, it'll make like, an audible noise whenever you can grapple somewhere else in the level. Um, and it basically gives you, like, a shortcut through every level. Um, and every dungeon area and like that's not to say like you won't have to fight enemies because like you absolutely will and that's all part of the grind and that feeds into the game but it gives you like it gives you a way around those encounters so people people like me that have beaten that game twice like you feel like you can go back to it and it won't necessarily be a slog through it because i feel like a lot of people are like why do i want to go and play this hundred hour yeah again and the answer is that it won't, probably won't be 100 hours because of the changes they made to the <laughs> dungeon grinding. Like, thank God. I actually really like the sound of that grappling hook. It sounds like it'd be fun to swing from place to place. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, um, like, I, I kind of talk about this in the preview that I, I think will be live by the time this goes out. Um, that, like, before... The Phantom Thieves are always talked about being, like, super stylish and cool, but they had no, like, cool way to get around the dungeon. They were just, like, running yeah. on the floor, like, whacking things. Um, well, now, like, <laughs> it's, they, now it's just, like, the grappling hook is just on, like, your left shoulder button. Uh-huh. You, just, you just tap it in, like, you zip instantly, like, zip up to a place, like, well above, like, everyone crowding around down below. Because uh, yeah, there's one thing I remember with the dungeons is that they were very cool, but yes, they did tend to get kind of long and wear their welcome after a certain like because multi day affairs practically uh, you were you were in there for a few hours at least. Oh, easily, easily, and like, that's like that's if you got lucky and didn't wipe out at some point, right? Because like, and also it's like it's a time thing within Persona Five um, in that you're constantly juggling it, like how many days have you got left until this bad thing happens. How long is it going to take you to get through this dungeon? Do you need to go back here and here? Whereas now it feels like they've brought new challenges, but also better ways to get around the existing challenges. Yeah, it's been out in Japan for a few months at this point. I think it was late October, yeah. I heard that they retconned the ending, which is going to be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I... So I haven't heard anything about this ending. Like, I just played two hours completely out of context. Um, but I'm kind of cautiously optimistic about this ending. Like, I I haven't really heard anything about it, but yeah, I hope it turns out okay. I was going to say, I 
kind of remember the ending, but uh, I don't really understand what would need to be retconned from it. Like, I don't want to go on and on because I don't want to spoil the ending, obviously, but uh, <laughs> I don't remember feeling very strongly about it one way or the other. A lot of people did feel pretty strongly about Persona 5, uh, not the least because it was a very political game. Mm. Oh, the ending is what I mean. Like, the, uh, mm. the the game itself and the politics and stuff, sure. Like, but uh, Yeah, the true ending, everything is like everything's wrapped up kind of in a neat little bow, like, as you kind of expect yeah. from a true ending. I think the corner they've kind of written themselves into here is that if they want... Because, like, this game is structured along a very rigid timeline. So if you want to add anything to that timeline, it's got to be on the end. But the trouble is, like, that that original ending fits, like, exactly in a point at the timeline that you cannot alter. So if they're going to do hmm. like a third term, like for Persona, like they're doing, they're doing it like a summer term. I think it goes up to like the end of March. Now they've got to move that original end ah, and overwrite it. Somewhere. Right. I forgot about yeah. that because yeah, Persona, Persona 4, Golden. Four Golden did the same thing. Yeah. So I, I I don't I wouldn't be shocked if they did that with uh, Persona Five Royal. By the way, how would you like the new character? Oh, I really like her. I really like her. Um, she's kind of like, you, if I said to you, like, emotional baggage for a Persona character, you'd be like, no way, really? Like, they've never even done that before. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, um, that's the point of the game, right? She, um, the only character who doesn't have emotional baggage is the main character. <laughs> yeah, and that's because he's boring as hell. Um, but it's, like, she kind of reminds me of, like, Persona 4's Kanji, Um like not in the sense of like her grades or anything because she's like a straight a student but because everyone sees her one way but she's keen to like break out of that mold um like she's uh she's kind of like a she's a regional gymnast she's got a very like doting father um and she kind of like resents all of this um I believe at one point in the demo, she was referred to as, like, Miss Special Snowflake by, like, other students <laughs> who were bullying her. Um, which, you know, oof, ouch. Um, and she's kind of keen to break free of this uh, this structure of, like, the golden girl that she has, like, been slotted into. Hiran, did you ever say whether or not you ended up going back to play Persona 3 and 4? Yes, yes. Um, so, at Katie McCarthy's very, like, strict recommendation, um, <laughs> I went back, to, uh, so I got a, I got hold of a Vita, um, and I played Persona 4 Golden, and I right. played Persona 3 Portable. Um, and you liked 3 better. I, I did like three better. I think I think four. I, I think I said it at the time. It was like I think of that game as like awkwardly horny. Um, <laughs> yeah, like like it's kind of a a teenager with like a really awkward erection and it doesn't really know what to do. Um, whereas like Persona Three is like I think that's probably one of the best meditations on like depression I've seen in a video game. If I were to pull just a quote uh, to name individual episodes of Act of the Blood God, I think I would go with awkwardly horny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's because like, w the thing I think of when I think of Persona 4 Golden is I think of Teddy and I think of him constantly perving on everyone. Um, and there's that goddamn, like, there's that beach scene where Kanji's like running around naked and shit. It's like, it's just a bit awkward. So uh, I think I think I'm remembering this right. He loses his swimming trunks, um, and so like he walks out of the water with like seaweed covering his dick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of funny. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's... It, oh, boy, that game is awkward. Giant red signs saying, not safe for work, kids. Yeah, we, um, Kat and I have talked extensively about that sort of thing in Persona 4. Yeah, it's it's a weird one to revisit. <laughs> All right, Hiran, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, Persona 5 Royal and the Fire Emblem Three Houses DLC. Okay, uh, we are going to continue onward now to the Dreamcast console RPG quest, so don't go away. All right, I'm here with Shane Bettenhausen, who's been on the podcast before. He was here to talk to us about Fantasy Star 4 back when we were doing the top 25 RPGs of all time. And I brought Shane on here because we're continuing on with the console RPG quest. We're going to be talking about the Sega Dreamcast, and I know that Shane is a big fan of the Sega Dreamcast. I also have a lot of love for the final Sega console. Shane... What's your history with the Sega Dreamcast? Well, thanks for having me back. And there's a beautiful continuity, because really, the Sega Dreamcast is where we, Fantasy Star Superfans, finally got the thing we wanted in a new way, which was ultimately the rebirth of Fantasy Star. But that's, we're skipping ahead. Uh, Define the, the Se- rebirth. <laughs> well, you know, an evolution. Was anyway, it the rebirth or the end? Uh, it was the beginning of the end of the beginning. The I, first. Don't, I don't want to be a downer. Just No, but the Dreamcast was cool for lots of reasons because, you know, the, the Saturn, like, as this long-suffering Saturn fan, I had really enjoyed that console, and it had in Japan at least a ton of RPG. Most of them didn't come to America, but, you know, it was it was a cool platform. So hopes were high for Sega Dreamcast to kind of follow in that you know, ill. Um, and I was an adult at this point. I I had just finished college. I like, you know, so I was excited. I had money. I imported Sega Dreamcast as soon as it came out, and it was such a step above, you know, everything we had in terms of visual fidelity. Like it was, it could make beautiful polygons at a higher resolution with really good looking textures. Um, you know, I remember that there were no RPGs really at launch, but I remember playing. Sonic Adventure on my 20-inch monitor through VGA box, and just being blown away by the visual fidelity. Like, it really did feel like a next-generation elite over, um, you know, PS2. I mean, I'm sorry, I, I guess... Uh, yeah, PlayStation 1. Well, yeah, well, it was, it was PS2, I know, I guess, you're right, I'm, I'm, I'm all PS2, right, PS2 PS2 was out a year later, yeah. Right, a year later. So, yeah, over PS1, and even, like, visual fidelity was, like, a little better than you know, some arcade games. I mean, it was pretty astonishing how good Dreamcast looked at the time. Um, and it was kind of a bummer for RPG fans that there were no RPGs. There were a few things that launched that were like marketed as being close to RPGs, but they weren't. And really, Evolution was the first thing that looked like an RPG, which was made by Sting. And they were um, Square adjacent. They had co-developed what I think Treasure Hunter G for Square on Super Nintendo. So you know, everybody was kind of like, well, it's the only thing we have. So everybody imported this game, Evolution. It was very basic, kind of a roguelike dungeon crawl with turn-based battles were kind of basic. But it had, it had pretty graphics, but, you know, it wasn't much. And uh, it was another few months before there was another RPG, and that was from Climax, or I guess at this point they were called, it was a combination of Climax and Sonic Software Planning, who had long been developing things in Sega since the Landstalker days. And their game was called Climax Landers. In America, it had the 
unfortunate title of uh, later as Time Stalkers. But I remember importing this game and being, you know, high expectations of it's weird. Again, like kind of a random, randomly generated dungeons, you know, like with no real through line. It did have guest characters from all their previous games in it. So I had like a character from Landstalker, Lady Stalker, someone from Dark Savior, the, the really weird Saturn game. Did you prefer that? They probably didn't make it count as it. Dark Savior. You ever see that? It's totally weird. It's one of the weirdest games of all time. You should investigate it. Like, it's totally, totally fucked up. It, it, if you've ever did, like, mini episodes on, like, the most fucked up RPGs ever, Dark Savior. <laughs> Super weird. It's, it's an isometric action RPG, kind of, like, it's weird, post-apocalyptic, and it's, um, it's very surreal, has a lot of curse words in it. It's really weird. The art's totally crazy. It's bizarre. And it came out the same day as Guardian Heroes, which is a much better game. Anyway. Oh, man. Uh, now we have to do weirdest, most effed up oh, RPGs. Yeah. I mean, Climax in general. Like, the whole through line of Climax to Sonic Software Planning, like, it's all... That, just, that's like a whole sub, sub-series of podcasts that someone should do. So anyway, yeah, like, early, early RPG pickings on the Dreamcast, weird. And so the first year is pretty much kind of a dead zone, desperate for anything... Even, like normal, right? Um, and there's not anything to an- that's announced. And then finally, I think they announced that Grandia 2 is in development in Game Arts. And Grandia was like the great savior of the Saturn. I mean, people here in America consider Grandia a PlayStation franchise, I guess. But like, Grandia by Game Arts um, was like the huge Saturn RPG in a post FF7 kind of world. This was like the Saturn's answer to Final Fantasy 7. You can imagine that, Grandia. Because um, the Saturn couldn't, could barely do 3D, and Grandia was one of the best-looking games that did texture map 3D on the Saturn, somehow. Um, anyway, so Grandia 2 gets announced, and looks fantastic. You know, Grandia 2, still one of the best-looking RPGs on the Dreamcast. Um, and weirdly, it gets published in America by Ubisoft. Okay, so at this point, you know, Dreamcast comes out in America a year, like, well, nine, ten months later, right? Nine nine ninety nine is when Dreamcast comes out in America. So I think at launch, maybe neither is Evolution. I guess Evolution's there. Crime Stalkers, is that there at launch in America? Do you remember? But Grandia 2 isn't out yet. So Grandia 2 comes out like in 2000. Um, so yeah, we're already like a year and a quarter into Dreamcast, and there's like no major RPG of note. In, in Japan, there's tons of like action games, like all the great, you know, arcade games that Sega's making, light gun games, brawlers, fighting games, lots of adventure games, and by that I mean, like, dating, romance, story, visual novels. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Tyson. At, at this point, both Nintendo and PlayStation are doing so well, but Sega's having trouble finding major yeah, Define doing so well, because N64 was kind of, eh. eh. But, you know, DS is out at this point, right? DS was GBA and GBA. GBA was a year after that. It was, like, 2001. Wow. Yeah. So, like, I guess you're right. Maybe N- well, N64 doing okay. Okay. It was, it was all right. You know, had a market. The problem is the PlayStation vacuumed it all up. Yeah, I guess you're right. This is the peak PS1 and WonderSwan. Is that wrong? Mm-hmm. This is a long time ago. I, I want to circle back to um, the graphics talk uh, conversation yeah, yeah. really quickly. One thing that I kind of noticed, like looking through the RPG library for the, the Sega Dreamcast, was that maybe the RPGs were some of the weren't as good looking as some of the best looking games on the Dreamcast. Um, what do you think was the best looking game on the Dreamcast? Would it be Soul Calibur, maybe? 
Yes, Soul Calibur is, or you know, later on we'll, we'll get we'll get to Shenmue One too. But Soul Calibur, when it came out, was by far the best looking game. I still remember like showing it off to all of my friends, people with mind blown, people who only played PC games, like they would be impressed how good Soul Calibur looked, especially mm-hmm. through a VGA box. It looked better than the arcade game, markedly better. I remember. Um, it, I mean, the, yeah. the the arcade game looked way way worse than the Dreamcast version. No, I, yeah, it was it was amazing how much like and it wasn't just like better textures and stuff. Like some of the backgrounds had had just like better rendered objects in them and stuff. Like it was crazy. And the, ultimately, the Dreamcast was, as you were pointing out, much more of a uh, shoot 'em up slash action like fighting game slash racing console than it was yeah. an RPG console. I right. characterized it as the last of the arcade consoles because if you look at going back to say the Atari and the NES and uh, the 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 various Sega consoles, the arcades, arcade ports, and arcade lineage and arcade history played such a huge role in the like the DNA of those particular consoles. And after the Dreamcast, it became much more PC focused. Uh, starting with the Xbox, so the the Dreamcast was kind of the end of an era in that respect. Definitely, and you know, I think it, in Japan it leaned heavily again on Sega's arcade output, but in America it did have a lot of sports games. So I think there's a you know in America it kind of yeah I worked at retail at the time. I remember like it was mainly yeah like a fighting game, traditional Sega you know light gun brawler fighting people, and then like a big swath of like. Are, you know, sports, American sports fans. Um, and there were a lot of, like, at this point, you know, kind of, like, American-style action-adventure games also kind of came out for it. But, yeah, for fans of the JRPG, it was, you're, you're hard-pressed. Um, and it was kind of a bummer that there, that there weren't high-production-value JRPGs. Because there were a few more that trickled out that first year and a half, and some of them are interesting. Like, like and some of them, because it was such a, you know, uh, slim pickin', some of them came into America. Like, things like uh, egg elemental gimmick gear, which is a very strange action RPG where you kind of play this like dumpy looking robot. Um, I think uh, it was uh, the guy who made Moon was involved with this game. It's very strange. Came out of America, oh. like that's one to like track down. Um, and that that same guy, what's his name? You remember the guy who made like Moon and uh, oh, Skip? The company's called he's coming called Skip. Anyway, they're like a very quirky, iconic, classic small Japanese developer. And he had another game on Dreamcast called. Um, lack of lack of love, which only came out in Japan. Um, yeah, two very weird, very weird RPGs. Lol. Uh, lol. Yeah, lol. Lack of love. Um, we'll we'll toss that onto the the weird RPGs list. Yeah, uh, and I think with that that second year also in Japan, Capcom, who was you know a very faithful Sega supporter throughout Sega, and and also on Dreamcast, lots of fighting games, lots of good points. They had at the time, which was a very avant-garde concept in this episodic RPG called El Dorado Gate, which is set seven games that came out um, you know, over the span of a year, maybe a year and a half, with art by Yoshitaka Amano. You ever seen these? Have you heard of these games, El Dorado Gate? It's very interesting. You know, Yoshitaka Amano, Capcom published RPGs, seven of them. They never came in, in they were never translated outside of Japan. Um, and I never got into them personally, but... Uh, it's it's interesting because it, you know it is a large a large chunk of the RPGs on on Dreamcast. It seems like the Dreamcast is just one of those weird consoles where a lot of things fell between the cracks, as it were. 
Right. But yeah, an episodically released JRPG in, you know, 20 years ago. Kind of weird, right? From Capcom. Yeah. So. I mean, we, we were kind of heading into that era, right? Because it was just a few years later that we'd get Xenoblade Chronicles. Or sure, not Xenoblade sure. Chronicles, the other one, Xenosaga. Xenosaga, episodes one through three. Yeah. Yeah. But back um, when the idea of doing an episodic series meant putting out like three or four different full length RPGs um, over the course yeah. of multiple years, which, by the way, were all very different. Right, right. Whereas I believe Eldorado Gate, I remember watching the sales trickle down and, like, you know, it started really strong and then each successive one would lose, like, you know, 30% of the people buying it. <laughs> and then they, they, all, they all came out. I say you did mention uh, Record of Lotus War, which is actually came out in America, which is more of an action RPG. It's based on it's basically know, very, a Diablo clone. It is, yeah, and it's based on a you know very famous uh, anime, um, and it's pretty good. Um, and I think it's you know co-developed by someone who you've worked on some other games, and uh, yeah, there were a few, a few other anime licensed games, but that that's probably yeah. One of the best. Yeah, I mean, it's it goes without saying that there. I feel like there's a lot of conventional wisdom around the Dreamcast. I I, I think the the conventional wisdom is Dreamcast comes out. Uh, it was too good for this world, and then the Dreamcast bulldozed it. But there was so much going on with the Dreamcast as to why it ended up ultimately failing. I would argue that one of the big reasons that it never quite succeeded was that EA wasn't behind it. Uh, you were mentioning the sports games earlier, uh, like EA and Sega, you know, they were super tight going back to the, the Sega Genesis days, right? And there's a, a whole interview with, uh, between like, I think Bernie Stoller and um, I forget the name of the person. It was one of the major people in EA history and how EA was basically trying to play hardball with Sega and saying, We'll come to the Dreamcast, but you can't make your. You have to kill the the 2K game series, and Sega said absolutely not, and EA said, "All right, bye." <laughs> and, well, and, our, and the 2K sports games were really quite good, quite innovative. They were doing oh, yeah. you know online gameplay. They're still around. Time. NBA 2K. And, yeah, they are still around, and and that, in this era, they they you know NFL 2K was seen as better than the competitor. But going to PlayStation, like, that was one of the nails in the coffin, probably, because, I mean, you don't got Madden? Well, there you go, right? (laughs) I mean, but, you know, towards the end of Dreamcast, because we're not too far from it, you know, we're we're about to hit the peak, the the best RPGs, but it was pretty much euthanized. Not quite as badly as, like, a Neo Geo Pocket, but, like, Sega deciding to go third party spelled instant doom, and Dreamcast never really got to live out its full potential was so, there a yeah. scenario that it could have survived and competed with the ps2 because i would argue that if they had ag- priced it aggressively enough and had the right third parties they might have been able to make a go for it part of the problem though was i guess the ps2 by 2001 it had like gta 3 and that was just it right there there was no way that was ever going to be on dreamcast well, and it's interesting because, like, before Dreamcast came out, I was working at an EB in the mall, and by the time Dreamcast was dead, I was in a game journalist. I moved, you know, I'd be, I got into the industry, and like, and I remember being stunned at like the speed by which the news of Sega going third party and the denouement and just death of Dreamcast all happened very quickly. It was kind of bewildering, and it seems to me like it was not. There was no other timeline for the Dreamcast, but like it was just part of the decision. 
I mean, there were just so many factors going into it. I mean, piracy was a huge problem with the Sega Dreamcast. Right. Well, it had a quote-unquote proprietary format of the GD-ROM, but most games could just be burned to a CDR, right? Like, yeah. Like, I know a lot of people pirating. I've I've told this story before, but my first day of college, I'm walking to my dorm, and I see somebody playing a Dreamcast. I'm like, oh, hey, Dreamcast. And they go, oh, yeah, I got all the games. You want any? (laughs) Because they could just burn them, like, right there. It was so easy. Also, Sega had really put so much effort into a few very ambitious projects. We'll get to Shenmue's here in a minute. But, yeah. like, had really kind of... Yeah, they'd always been the main the mainstay on all their platforms. They made the lion's share of the software, and they did that here again. But uh, it was spread... Yeah, they'd spread their resources pretty thinly, and they'd spun off all these divisions into, like, separate companies internally, weirdly. Remember? Everyone had logos and... It got all very complicated, and it seemed, yeah, like, you know, at, at the peak when it seemed like Dreamcast was amazing and going to really make it happen, right as, like, Fantasy Star Online was coming out, and it, at that point, the cracks were already kind of starting to show, actually, you know? Even it's such an fan. interesting time, though, because, like, it seemed like Sega was just willing to leave it all on the table, as it were. Um, I remember yeah. interviewing uh, Jake Kazdahl, um, uh, my, my boy Jake, who I'm still really happy I get yeah. to work with. Uh, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been working with Jake ever since I've been. Who worked Mizuguchi. directly under Mizuguchi when Mizuguchi yeah. was working on the the Dreamcast, and how he was talking about how Mizuguchi was able to convince Sega to let him uh, open an office right in Shibuya, which is where like the coolest, hippest areas were, uh, because he was like, I got to be in the center of it all. <laughs> You know, right. but it was also like so expensive, right? <laughs> I mean, to go from where Sega was based, right. Sega of Japan was based, to be sitting in uh, Shibuya, but Sega was like, yeah, whatever. Like, we got to be cool, we got to be hip, go for it. Right, and like, you know, it's funny we won't talk about a lot of the really cool games like Space Shuttle Five and Res on here, but I, you know, I did on my list of RPG adjacent things, things I wanted to mention that aren't really RPGs are some of the most interesting games for the Dreamcast. Things like Seaman. I mean, like. Think about Seaman. Have you pl- ever seen or played Seaman? I have C- seen Seaman. I've never played Seaman. Oh. But, I mean, first of all, the name. Seaman, <laughs> like, don't panic. C- like, Seaman is this crazy simulation by Yud Saito where you're, like, growing this creature that speaks, voiced by Leonard Nimoy in the English version. And it's amazing. And it got marketed as, like, a killer app. And it sold really well, like, especially in Japan. Um... But yeah, it was it was not cheap. It has like very good graphics, and it came with a microphone. It was like that. That's what I wanted to mention. I also wanted to mention Machin X, which was like the only Shin Megami Tensei title for the Dreamcast, which is like an you know first person action RPG slasher. What? Oh, it's amazing! It has an incredible soundtrack. It has uh, Kaneko art. Um, it's super. It, I can't, I beat it. It gets super hard at the end. It never actually. It got ported. It got ported to PS2, but I think the Dreamcast version is better. Maybe Machin X. Look it up. It's nuts. Did um, you? So speaking of games that are RPG adjacent, would you put Shenmue in that category? Yes, I have Shenmue one and two here, and like it's you know now in a post Shenmue three world where it's easily now you can easily play Shenmue one and two you know in modern online platforms experience them. Um, it's hard to I think it's hard for modern audiences to understand just how phenomenal, especially Shenmue 1 was, like, the, how ambitious it was, how good the graphics were, like, how incredibly detailed that world is for a console game, but, like, 
they, those games are nuts, and they really are role-playing games. I mean, yes, you're playing a specific character, and it's, a, it's partially a brawler, but uh, I, I thought they were a realization of, of, of a very distinctly Japanese point of view for an RPG that Sega put so much time and effort and money into that they kind of, along with Fantasy Star Online, for me, those games do personify Greencast. Um, the thing I find really interesting uh, about Sega in general uh, is how it was almost as auteur-driven as, say, Nintendo was with people like Yu Suzuki. And Reiko Kadama would always... Uh, she would never claim herself as an auteur, but she, her name comes up so much, you know, as such a central figure in Sega's history and so on and so forth, you know. And, uh, you know, the Dreamcast in so many ways was their last hurrah as, like, major figures as well. Well, and going through this list here, you're right. Like, a lot of these games are from, like, you know, really interesting creators with unique points of view. And I, and I think that's a cool thing about Sega and about the Dreamcast. And, you know, this this library, like, it was, it was refreshing for me to look back on, on you know, the full library of Dreamcast and pick out the RPGs and stuff. Imagine, because, like, it is very distinctive and unique. It's unlike most other platform libraries. Um, we were, you know, we should just dive into Fantasy Star Online. And yes. Fantasy Star Online was announced very early on. Like, it was T, like, you know, there was, like, one key visual for it very early when Sonic Team had, like, a press conference um, very early. And so I, I knew it was coming, and, like, I was super excited. I, I didn't want to be disappointed. And then, like, that, early, that really early footage, if you look at it, like, it's not the final game, but, you know, it was representative of the visual style we finally got, which clearly was referencing Fantasy Star 2. Like, so much of the visual aesthetic of, like, the monsters is, and, the, you know, the characters and the art, especially in the, you know, the forest in the beginning of the game, is, like, you know, straight-up Fantasy Star 2, which is, like, you know, one of my favorite games. Everyone's favorite Fantasy Star that before. And, like, this game was clearly, like, we got you, but we're, we're going to, like, make a game all around the online play which was still a fairly novel concept for consoles at that point. I mean, the fact that Dreamcast, every Dreamcast came with that modem, you know, that was a, bit, a huge deal. So the second this game came out, I had I had imported, and, like, you know, I, I ended up over the span of the, you know, the U.S. release, and then later Fantasy Star, on, Fantasy Star Online Volume 2, the, like, pseudo-sequel kind of add-on that came up, you know, a little bit later. I, you know, I cl- easily played over 200 hours on Dreamcast alone, and then later on, on GameCube, probably another combined three or 400 hours of episodes one two there. Um, you know, it was just, it was it was my everything. It was like, you know, me and my friends just playing every night for hours and hours and hours. The first time people, you probably uh, had that experience, right? Because you weren't a big PC gamer. No, you know, I really wasn't. I, I played a lot of, you know, adventure games and like single-player stuff on PC, but I really wasn't an online multiplayer gamer. I played a little bit of, like, Unreal Tournament, um, but really, yeah, PSO was my first. I, 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 actually, actually, I had played some EverQuest, but I gave up after level 50. So why did PSO grab you in a way that EverQuest didn't? Was it the was it the anime? I mean, a huge part of it was the art and music and the gameplay, because it actually has this really fulfilling, you know, what appears to be action-driven combat, which really isn't. You know, it's like stealthily disguised turns <laughs> behind action in PSO. Um, but there's like a wonderful like rhythm to it. There's just enough randomness um, and the great sense of progression of just of like 
you know, looking for the rares, feeding your mags. But, you know, it really, is, it really was just a, it was the ultimate extension of the chat room I already lived in. Like, I was, you know, I was in the, in the gaming industry at this point. I had been on IRC, which is old internet relay chat, with a core group of friends for years and years, and this was the same people. So, like, basically, it was just like, oh, the thing I was already doing with a gorgeous new fantasy star that we can play forever. Uh, so yeah, it, it was really pivotal, and I think like for some people that's Final Fantasy uh, Eleven that was that game, or EverQuest, or whatever you had. It was you know, World of Warcraft. It was like just the, the the wonderful the wonderful treadmill that was aesthetically pleasing to you. Um, yeah, I loved it. I, I you know I, I gave every time I reviewed a PSO, I gave them tens, and I, I had to fight for it. And I remember when I gave Episode Three Card Revolution a ten. Dan Shu, like, called, I think it was Dan Shu and Mark O'Donnell, both at EGM, called me in their, in their office, like, yell at me to try to talk me out of it, and I was not going to get it. I was like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember when PSO came out, uh, like, I was aware of it. I owned a Dreamcast. Um, but <laughs> the idea of online gaming on a console seemed kind of out of reach at that point, because... I mean, and a lot of people will say the Dreamcast was super ahead of its time and online the way that it had online play was one of them because I mean it had a modem support, and that's how you played PSO. And you know, back then I had my desktop and the idea of actually getting my parents to let me plug a modem or whatever into my Dreamcast just seemed super far fetched. So PSO was like this weird idea that like I actually could not actually wrap my mind around in two thousand or whatever. Oh, but you know, we all got the broadband adapter because that that modem, <laughs> that modem wasn't good enough. Which later, that see, broadband... you were in like an office, and that's that was awesome. Like you oh, were yeah. you were with all the toys. Yeah, and later that broadband adapter for Dreamcast became a hot item because like like phone freakers and hackers use it to like hack into ATMs now. So it's like the GameCube one. Yeah, yeah you're right. Because they were using it to create the Mario <laughs> Network, the homebrew Mario oh, Network. Really? That's that's crazy. Yeah, it's um, crazy, and it became very expensive for a time. Uh, um, but this kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're sadly, just as it's getting really good, we're kind of getting towards the, you know, almost tragic end here. And before we get to the tragic end, there's two, there's two really bright spots. Well, for me, three really bright spots. We'll do the two obvious ones first. There's one little known title that I always tell people to seek out. Uh, it's called Napple Tale. It never got published outside of Japan, but a first party game from Sega, uh, that had mostly like a female development staff behind it. Actually, it's it's action RPG. It has really interesting graphics and a soundtrack by Yoko Kano, who's like this amazing Japanese like you know composer, but also singer. And uh, it's a great game that like is, is you know largely on the deep cut there, Napple Tale. Uh, and then really the, the final giant game is known here as Skies of Arcadia in Japan. So it's Eternal Arcadia, and it was kind of like here it is. Sega, the crown jewel. The crown jewel. You're not, you're not going to get a mainline fantasy star, but you are going to get an all new, brand new IP that is really kind of like our our take on you know Final Fantasy in quotes, but you know not quite like, but you know airships, magical adventure, kids on a big quest, evil empire. Um, you know, and it is a great, it's a really good game, and luckily it did have a second life on GameCube. Um, but it, it is really good. My, however, I always have felt a little guilty because, like, I've never finished it, and, like, I think it's a little too hard for its own good. Have you ever played it? Yeah, it's quite hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. Fairly grindy, I think. 
high, high encounter rate. Wasn't the GameCube version even harder? Am I, am well, I it was. I think that? they made it e- even harder. And like somehow it has worse graphics on GameCube. So. <laughs> I do remember that, uh, yeah, because uh, that was uh, when I ended up picking it up, actually. Yeah. That's when it came out on the GameCube. It's not a great port. Um, it has a really good soundtrack, both versions. And, like, you know, it's also very charming and kind of like a old-school Studio Ghibli kind of gentle charm. Oh, like, yeah. I mean, it has a real Nausicaa vibe to it. But it's... My other thing is, like, it's a little... It's a little like you know. I, I wish it was a little darker or something, but I do. I really respect it. It's really pretty. Um, I love it, but I I, I don't think I like it. I mean, cool. Square seems to own everything at this point. They should <laughs> just go out and remake uh, Skies of Arcadia. And if Sega says, "What what are you doing? Why are, well, why are you doing I mean, that?" Square can be like, "Yeah, whatever." A really cool recent thing is that Sega has been increasingly laissez-faire about licensing out its properties, especially to the original creators if they want them back. Like. We've seen this go, you know, I've seen Res come back out, we're seeing Space Channel 5, a new version of that come out, like... Pan- Sega's Pan- weird. Pan- it's still Pan- a Pan- weird company. Panzer Dragoon getting re- re- remade by people in Poland, like, it's all very interesting, so... Remade badly, by all accounts. Have you seen it? I have the screenshots... The sp- I have not, I have not heard good things. I'll, I'll, I'll say that screenshots. much. I'm holding out. But then again, like, if you talk, you Saturn graphics, you know, Panzer Dragoon is Saturn graphics. It's hard to take Saturn... Have you seen Saturn graphics? Like, Mm-hmm. I mean, like if you really, if, you know, it's tough in that kind of remake. It's like, do you redo everything, and then if it, is it still the same game if you redraw everything? Like, I think Eternal Arcadia, Skies of Arcadia, you could just kind of take those Dreamcast graphics, make them just really, you know, high res, and maybe make the game easier. Like, make some modernizations to the encounter rate. And, and no, nah, I think you redraw them because I think the art style holds up, uh, and it's okay to move away from that kind of Dreamcast look. Yeah, I do think this game deserves this a, a third chance with like a rebalance because like it's very it's very charming. It's very long too. Like, yeah, it's sad because it feels a little bit lost to history at this point. Because I mean, obviously the Dreamcast was its main platform, and the Dreamcast is one of those consoles that does not have a lot of presence on you know in collections or on other platforms that's changed a little bit in recent history but skies of arcadia is not one of those games that got a re-release it got ported kind of poorly to the gamecube as you already alluded to and then that's it like it's not like on everything like some of these other games right that core, yeah, actually, even grandia 2 is on the freaking switch at this point right and it's, i remember the skies game had been announced for ps2 but it was quietly canceled after the bad reception for the gamecube version so yeah i do fear that one could be trapped trapped in time uh, along with a lot of these, like like Machin X and and Seaman and yeah, and and one of my very favorites here that I kind of saved for last, and you know much like Skies, which was a late game, this was also a very late game, but also got kind of butchered for its Western release. So I think a lot of people haven't played it, and it doesn't nearly get the respect it deserves. And that is uh, D two from Warp, and hmm. it's it's very close to my heart. You know, I mean, I'm kind of renowned as like the Warp super fan. Uh, James Milky and I. You know, we re- we did this amazing interview with Kenji. You know, that still kind of makes the rounds every year because it's just like massive. Did you know that I? Uh, I think I transcribed that one. I, you probably, I think you did, and it's uh, it's one of my. It's actually probably my favorite thing that I did as a journalist. Um, because uh, uh, because I was this like in two thousand eight? Maybe it was before he. Di- it was like a few years before he died. Yeah, and, yeah. So D two, you know, was originally announced for the ill-fated M two console from Panasonic. By the way, rest in peace, Kenji, you know, legend. Right, 
RIP. So yeah, M the M2, the successor to 3DO, just got cancelled. D2 was originally for that, um, and then that got cancelled, so he turned it into a completely different game, and Sega gave him a lot of time and a really big budget to make his grand opus. Uh, and it's nuts, and it's really an action RPG. You, you play as Laura, I think her last name is Parton in this one, and you know, you're, it's basically playing through a new version of John Carpenter's thing, but it has like these crazy psychosexual, really like macabre body horror elements, and also like an ending that's, you know, out Kojima's Kojima in terms of profundity and broad social discourse. And so much of the game was over the top and, you know, beyond a, uh, would have got an AO rating that Sega had to cut a lot of it out from America. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, uh, what an interesting time for games, right? Uh, yeah, so Sega Dreamcast, and like you're right, like, if you're someone young who's collecting, who's trying to figure out what's a console that I can get into, that I can. That's the one. This is the one because you can get a lot of these on the cheap still, and they they look good. That like, or the Saturn, but, but I, yeah, although Saturn's getting harder. Right. Yeah. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Well, if you go to Japan, I, th I mean, okay, maybe it was ten years ago, but I saw Saturn stuff everywhere. You're right. Saturn is still gettable. Um, and there's there's a ton like you know there's so much to pick from on Saturn. Whereas on Dreamcast, really like there aren't that many games. Um, especially like if you if you delete all of like Japanese adventure, as in like you know visual novel dating games, delete all those and delete like all the yearly sports games, you're left with like a fairly reasonable size you know stack. <laughs> I think the Dreamcast would be the most fun to import for, because you were describing so many games that are practically unknown in the U.S. Yeah, and uh, there are more. There, there are there are a few other Japan only. Yeah, um, Super Robot art, Wars Alpha art, was ported to the Dreamcast Wars, badly. <laughs> there's Love Hina. There's there's a really interesting version of Sorcerian, you know, which is one of Falcom's oldest franchises. That that's pretty good. Um, so it has a deeper RPG legacy than it looks. Yeah, but I think compared, it's a little bit more like the Mega Drive in that like there aren't that many, but there's a few really really cool, interesting, unique, exclusive ones. But yeah, as a as a Saturn fan, it's definitely a come down. Because Saturn kind of had like the PC Engine effect of like just like lots of weird, interesting RPGs from lots of smaller developers, and that's what you don't get here. So would you? If you were to rank Sega's consoles, would you go Saturn, Dreamcast, Genesis, Mega Drive, or how would you rank them? I mean, I, I, I don't count Mega Drive and Genesis separately, so for me, just like my personal fandom overall, it's probably, yeah, Saturn... I meant Master System, by the way. <laughs> I mean, okay, I, I do love Master System. However, for me, Saturn is number one, I love it. Uh, mm -hmm. Then Genesis slash Mega Drive. Then I might. Oh, it's tough. Then it's it's probably Dreamcast actually, because of all the quirk and and PSO. Then Mega Drive. I mean then I mean then eight bit uh, SMS Mark III. Um, but I also have a weird soft spot for Sega CD, even though it's a nightmare. But it has a high quotient of really good exclusive RPGs, and it was pivotal. Like Lunar Silver Star Story is still like you know a formative <laughs> for me. <laughs> But then again, Fantasy Star 1 for the SMS also formative. You really can't live without all of them. The only one you can live without that you can throw straight in the garbage bin is the 30 <laughs> As for me, I think with the Dreamcast, 
uh, Grandia 2 is my main memory on that one because I was fully into RPGs by this time. I picked up a Dreamcast on a whim right after it got after it got canceled uh, because I was like, oh, well, these might be expensive at some point because they might be rare, so I better pick one up. And I got a lot of really great games on it. I had Crazy Taxi and Marvel vs. Capcom 2 and Power Stone and various shoot-em-ups. Um, and Grandia 2 was definitely my joint on that particular console. And my main memory was that the graphics were just okay, but it was the battle system and the and the music that really carried that game. And I go back now sometimes, and I'm still like, dang, the music in that game was great. Is that Iwadare who did the soundtrack for Grandia 2? I think it is. Because he did Grandia 1, and he's really good. And I think he did Lunar. Maybe there's a three-line there. Oh man, perfect. So yeah, like I, I it took me a long time to beat Grandia too because you want to talk about hard RPGs. Uh, the final boss in that game is a pain in the ass. Yeah, and, and the, the combat you really have to pay attention. You can't kind of like just mash the buttons in that game. You really have to. Yeah. The absolute worst thing in that game is when you would get a counter to go, or when you had a counter ready and you were watching the little timeline, and the boss would just barely beat you to their super attack and you're like well there goes my party yeah every time i'm talking about the old grandia games i I kick myself again for not buying grandia extreme for ps2 because now it's really expensive and like i still need but it's not good isn't it no it's it's the worst grandia by far but yeah Yeah, i thought grandia 3 was pretty bad honestly it was a big disappointment. Um, yeah. I've always kind of wanted to revisit it. I bought that game day and date when it came out, too. Oh, yeah. like, But I've always thought maybe like 20 years later I'll have a new kind of appreciation. I might. At the time, I really didn't like the story, but maybe I won't care now and I'll just appreciate the the, the combat. Yeah, but yeah, just talking just talking about like all these old grindings and stuff, it's like, this does seem like a long time ago. It is interesting that Dreamcast now does, does seem like, you know, this earlier, simpler time. Which definitely didn't, because Dreamcast felt very futuristic you know, 20 years ago. So. I, I don't know that it's the best console ever made, but it's still... I mean, I wrote it... When uh, when we celebrated the 20th anniversary last year, I wrote an article titled uh, Why the Dreamcast Still Matters, and I talked about how it was like a throwback in so many ways, in that it was the last arcade console, and it was the home to these classic, classic genres, like shoot 'em ups and that kind of thing. But then at the same time, it was like, you know, the future, right? And I kind of, I referred to it as the, like, bright dividing line in console history with arcades and platformers on one side and gaming's online future on the other. And, you know, and that it was the part, it was the console in which, uh, console history, on which gaming history really pivoted in a lot of ways. You're, you're completely right, because it's funny, the whole time I thought about Dreamcast, it's like, I think about it in this, you know, Sega arcade coin-op kind of rubric, because it still has all that. It has, like, a diehard, you know, it has, like, you know, it has, like, old-fashioned Sega franchises, like, you know, driving and shooting and racing, and, but at the same time, it, you know, had ran a version of Windows and has a menu, you know, it has a web browser, not this, but had you know had a web browser. Everybody and it was kind of this bridge between like the 1980s and yeah modern day. Um, yeah, it, I'm glad I'm glad that we had it. It was a wonderful way to go out. 
you know, it was because there, there are ways to go out there that are embarrassing, like the PCFX, you know, and like this was not embarrassing. It was a very strong idea. It was like a supernova, right? I mean, a supernova of creativity, just this wonderful, bright burst of amazing games like Jet Set Radio and Seaman and Res and Space Channel 5 and Skies of Arcadia. Woo! And, yeah. and Shenmue, man. Like, I got mad at Shenmue 3 because I thought, like, people are like, whatever, who cares? It's it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a nostalgia piece. And I'm like, yeah, but Shenmue shot for the freaking moon, man. That game was so far ahead of its time. It felt like it betrayed its legacy a little bit. Yeah, I think the ripples are still kind of being felt in Japan, in the development scene from this time. So it's, it's, good, that it, it's good that we had it. And, uh, yeah, you, you, you kind of made me want to plug mine back in. It's been a long time. All right, Shane. I'll leave you to go play the your old Dreamcast, and also thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. We'll have to have you on again, and we'll talk to you later. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Okay, thanks to Shane for coming on the show to talk extensively about the Sega Dreamcast. Uh, Nadia, he basically hosted the episode for me. It was great. Yeah, it's always nice when you just kind of sit back and like chug a beer and someone else does all the work for you. And drops a lot of knowledge on you, too. Yeah, and that's always good because I'm... um uh, if you read, uh, there's a thing on the site about like why I kind of skipped out on the Dreamcast until around 2001. So it's definitely not the most like filled out part of my video game history. So one thing that I forgot to talk about in the intro, and I guess I'll talk about briefly right here, is uh, Pokemon Home's out, officially. Nadia, have you had a chance to mess around with Pokemon Home at all? No, I haven't. Um, I haven't been the kind of person who transfers Pokemon a lot, but I do intend to uh, kind of mess around with Home a bit and see. You know you can put your boy Incineroar in there. That's true. Yes, that's why I want to That's why I want to transfer, and that's why I want to, like, I want to put Litten in there. I want to put like Incineroar in there. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to the resurrection of Nakamura. And here, I forget, did you play much Pokemon? So literally the only Pokemon game I've ever played is um, Pokemon Shield. I mean, I used to play like the trading cards at school, if that helps at all. But (laughs) apart from that, like Shield (laughs) is very much my first foray into the video game side of it. What what did you think of Pokemon Shield as a newcomer? I... I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed its like fun kind of outlook on life with like a weirdly serious environmental message running underneath it. Um, it's just like a nice, colorful RPG that you can stick a podcast on in the background and play to. Like it doesn't require much brain power. But yeah, I liked it. Yes, I went and after much science and <laughs> trying to figure out how to connect my 3DS to the internet and working around with all of the updates because holy cow the 3ds is ancient at this point i was able to figure out how to update pokemon bank get a blastoise and a hydragon onto pokemon bank after cross-referencing with sarah be the pokemon that i could actually transfer over from my collection because i had to look through both the list of pokemon that i could transfer and then the list of pokemon that were older pokemon in sword and shield eventually concluded that i could move like you know about a quarter a third of my collection maybe and something but i'm leaving most of them on i'm leaving most of them on the 3ds for now because 
I am going to wait for the expansion pass to start moving them on Moss. And also, I'm still collecting legends, and collecting legends is the thing that I do in Pokemon in general. I have mm. a large collection of po- legends, but I wanted to get at least one relatively high level Pokemon onto Sword and Shield so it, to help me com- c- complete my playthrough of the of the normal game. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been slacking, guys. <laughs> Which uh, which one did you choose? Oh, Blastoise. Oh, okay, yeah. So you're just gonna, like, everyone's just gonna come up to you with their little tiny Pikachus and be like, I challenge you, and Blastoise will just, like, launch, like, however many pressures of water at this poor little Pikachu and send it flying. Yeah. Yeah, it's been all Aura Blasts, actually, but I have uh, Hydro Cannon as well. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, when I played Pokemon Let's Go, I went up to Moltres, and of course, there's this big, like, you know, song and dance where it's cinema where he's like, ah, I'm Moltres, I'm on fire, uh, and then, like, I just took my, god, my freaking Gyarados, and I just, like, blasted it with the Hydro Pump, and it was just like, <laughs> and it died in one <laughs> <laughs> Why would you kill Moltres? Because you gotta defeat them, then you catch them. Yes, exactly. It's a little bit different, but yeah. Um, either way, he went down. Wow, Pokemon Let's Go is weird. <laughs> It's a great game. I love Pokemon. Let's go. I'm really disappointed. We're probably not getting gold and silver in that style anytime soon. All right. Let's do a quick mailbag and then wrap up. Okay. So last week we talked about the state of JRPGs in 2020. And as always, you had some thoughts, you being the audience. Um, The first is Iron Saint. Like Parrish, I've always hated the term JRPG. I felt its meaning was never as straightforward as it sounds. Just remember the debates around games like Child of Light and Dark Souls. Is it a style of RPGs or just a way to denote what country it was developed in? I think it's a style of RPG. Like, Dark Souls is not a JRPG. Child of Light is. Ah, God, yeah. This is where we are, I suppose. But, yeah. Um, I always consider it I mean, we said it's like the connection to manga. Yeah, yeah. Um, Child of Light was an interesting one because I really wanted to like it more than I did. It was really kind of all... I think the word you used for it was twee. It was very, very twee. Oh, so twee. So, so twee. Like, <laughs> I just didn't, I don't want to go up to NPCs and have them rhyme at me, especially with bad rhymes. Every Like, just <laughs> tell me where the the freaking item store is. I don't care. Also, Nadia, you may recall that I maybe jumped on the Vita a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, oh. You, so you um, you got your just desserts on that or one. Or crushed it? <laughs> um, <laughs> it people were quite moderate, actually, in... Uh, their responses to my, my Vita uh, kicking. Um, Iron Sane said, I was prepared to jump on Vita for her, uh, I was prepared to jump on Cat for her comments about the Vita, but I realized on reflection she was right. See, <laughs> everybody comes around eventually, Nadia. Cat <laughs> is always right. That's the motto of the site. <laughs> yes, so this is a good motto, I think. Um, I love handheld game, and I still play my Vita occasionally to this day, but its library isn't as strong as it could be. Most of my favorite gen- RPG genres on handheld have had their best examples on 3DS. Fire Emblem, Monster Hunter, and Etrian Odyssey were all some of my favorite series to play on handheld. Vita had some great alternatives, but they weren't quite as good. Freedom Wars and Soul Sacrifice, while good fun, aren't Monster Hunter. Strange Sword City is gorgeous, but it doesn't hold a candle to Etrian Odyssey. I love my Vita, but I have to admit it has its shortcomings. I mean, here, did yeah. you end up loving the Vita? Um, I felt it was like a relic of the past, kind of, which I feel is a little hard to say. <sighs> a relic. Say, this wow. That's probably true. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, okay, so when you've been picking up like a Switch or a Switch Lite and you try and pick up that thing, it's like stepping into the past. Um, you know, like Vita means life. Yeah, good for you. Um, but <laughs> the Vita... <laughs> 
the Vita, the Vita is dead, and uh, it's where it belongs now. The one thing I miss about having Matt, that's two T Matts on the news team, is that every single time he wrote a story about the Vita, no matter what it was about, the ta- the the uh, deck would always be Vita means life, <laughs> even if it was like the Vita is dying in a ditch. Vita means life. All right, Nadia, Jimmy Hill 11 rightfully calls us out on a glaring omission of our JRPGs discussion, which did not have a single mention of the Tales series. Yeah, we we have admitted that the Tales series is not one of our strong suits, and we fully admit that is our sin to bear. But uh, I've been making I, you play it. Tales? Oh, I'm sorry. for some, oh, Trails. I, for, I was getting... Yeah, okay, sorry. I thought you said Tails. Like, I'm like, yeah, we already went over how we suck at Tails, but Trails? Oh, no, I've, I've been playing Trails. I like Trails a lot. I would say it's not exactly the most innovative RPG series, like, as a series, of course. Like, um, I still think the battle system is, is one of the, the best ones out there in, in JRPG history, but, uh, yeah, I, um, as much as I like Trails, I don't think I'm, like, a huge encyclopedia of knowledge. Uh, when it comes to Falcom games, I feel like I'm still kind of filling in a lot of the gaps because Falcom's been around for for f- almost as long as I've been around, to be honest with you. And um, I'm kind of slowly getting the hang of ease and getting the hang of Trails. Uh, but I am still missing, for example, I'm missing Trails 2 and I'm missing Trails in the Sky, which is actually kind of a sad one to miss out on because Trails 3 has a lot of callbacks to Trails in the Sky, including two of the characters who are major in 3's story are, uh, of course, the protagonists of Trails in the Sky. So I am working on that. I am most certainly working on that. And Jimmy Hill 11 uh, observes that they don't think it's unrealistic to say Trails of Cold Steel 3 is probably the most high-profile JRPG release for the PS4 in 2019. And I'm like, really? And then I thought about it, I was like, yeah, I guess it might be, <laughs> yeah? Hype for the PS4? Um, what else yeah, was there? Yeah, I mean, I what else came out on the PS4 in terms of JRPGs in 2019? Yeah, um, gosh, as still a little bit niche as Trails is, uh, when you consider what the PS4's RPG status is compared to the Switch or PC, they might be right? For Last year was kind of a crap year for PS4 RPGs in general outside of Outer Worlds. Because I'm thinking like, oh, well, there's Dragon Quest uh, Eleven. No, there wasn't. That was the year before. Uh, there was Builders 2, which was good, but not quite the traditional RPG experience. Yeah, it didn't have the same hype. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and Trail... Yeah, and yeah, so for now, Trails is a PS4 exclusive. And... Of course, that's not going to be the case much longer because it's coming to, I think it's coming to PC and it's definitely coming to Switch. At least 3 is. And I've, al- I've always said that the Trail series, I admire it a lot because it is very much like reading a long fantasy novel series where it's just not afraid to just stem right directly off the game previous. So uh, it- it's basically an ongoing story. Same characters, practically same world, same pr- political intrigue. Like they've just been kind of dealing with stuff since the beginning of time. I like that. Well, Jimmy Hill 11 says, it will never be in the Final Fantasy Leagues, what JRPG will, or even Dragon Quest and Persona for that matter, but it still has an important part in the current JRPG landscape. And I, like, I agree with Jimmy. Um, I think that it's still relatively niche, but it has such a passion and fervent following, and it certainly always gets mainstream attention whenever a new one comes out. That, uh, yeah, yeah, that was... Actually, a fairly big omission on our part. 
we apologize. Uh, I really did like Trails 3 very much. It was one of my favorite games last year. Blood God, forgive us. All right, on that note, we have to wrap <laughs> up. Acts of the Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore catbot, at Nadia Oxford, and at Hearing Crier. Subscribe to our newsletter. It comes out every single Wednesday. We will be back next week, as always, for more RPG goodness. Keep sending in those letters. We'd love to hear from you. Cat.bailey at usgamer.net or in my DMs. But until then... For Nadia, Hiran, and myself, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy adventuring.